Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. And today we're talking about which jobs are going to be safe and which jobs are going to be taken over by robots, AI and automation. There's a famous quote from Charles Darwin in which he said that in the world of evolution, it's not the strongest or even the most intelligent that is going to survive. It's the most adaptable. And I think that logic applies very much because we're undergoing this transition to a digital economy. We need to teach students skills of agility and adaptability because they're going to need it. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, you've probably been reading headlines or hearing about how the entire universe is going to be taken over by robots. Eh, Maybe a little bit of an overstatement. But there is a trend that is afoot, and we thought we'd bring an expert, a policy expert and a wonderful guest to help explain what is the state of where we are in this robot takeover. Daryl West is the vice president of the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution, and he's just written a book called The Future of Work, Robots, AI and Automation. By the way, I know Daryl because he was a professor at Brown, and although I never took his class, I had heard a lot about him, and our paths sort of tangentially crossed every now and again. The book is great. The situation is fascinating. So here's our interview with Daryl West. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Daryl West, welcome to Better Off. I am so delighted to see you, an old friend from Providence, Rhode Island. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. Nice to be reunited. You were a Brown University alum, and I taught at Brown for and, 26 years. And Daryl, did we see each other getting in and out of a cab in New York some years ago in that a very random moment where I was getting out of a cab and you were getting in, and you were in D.C. already, and I said, I know you. That is exactly what happened. The funny thing is, even though we overlapped in Providence for many years, I don't think we actually ever met. Even though on Saturday mornings, I always listened to your finance show, always found it uh, great. And I was in New York uh, one day several years ago waiting for a cab. Somebody starts to get out. She starts talking to the taxi driver. I recognize the voice. And I said, Jill, it's you. And that was how we met for the first time. It was awesome. So, Daryl, we start the program with a very simple question. What is your best financial or career decision that you have made so far? Actually, the best decision by far was early investing in my retirement account. So I was about, I think, 26 years old when I started teaching at Brown. I arrived in fall of 1982, immediately started investing in my retirement account. And of course, what I didn't realize at the time, but I definitely appreciate now, was Fall of 1982 was literally the low point of what became almost a 30-year bull market. And so I got a lot of money out of my retirement account just by being fully invested. And what did you teach when you got to Brown? What was the first class you taught? My very first class was a course on campaigns and elections. So I'm a political scientist by training. I study American politics. That class has produced one member of the United States House of Representatives, uh, David Cicilline, and a number of other people who became very active in American politics 
politics and public policy. Now, the way I first came to know you was that my housemate, Robbie Lewis, Robert Lewis, took your class and loved you so much. And he kept talking about But he would never say Professor West. He would say, Daryl West. Like, it was like one name. Like, you were Madonna. Daryl West. <laughs> so I was pre-programmed to uh, very much enjoy you. And then you wrote and were really a, a go-to person for the local media in Providence when there was a political story. You would go on WJAR, Channel 10. So I do feel like I know you. The reason you're here today is that you've written a fascinating book called The Future of Work, Robots, AI, and Automation. So in the beginning of the book, you tell about why you wanted to write this. So recount that story for the listeners. Well, the reason I wanted to write the book was just the pace of technology innovation is really accelerating. In fact, I think in a few years, people are going to be absolutely shocked because we're going to have driverless cars. Uber already has ordered 24,000 for delivery starting next year. So we're not talking about something that's going to happen five or 10 years from now, which is what a lot of people think. It's like it's happening now in road testing, and soon it's going to be happening for a real. You can go into retail stores that are now fully automated. Uh, They will track the items you put in your car automatically charge your credit card. You will walk out of that store never having dealt with the sales clerk. I've walked into restaurants now where they give you a tablet and you order off the tablet as opposed to from a waiter or a waitress. So it's like we're just going to see all this stuff really picking up. Should we be nervous about this because there are obviously lots of implications? The first thing that you know you think about is that the revolution that is in place already, it's already started, will displace so many workers. And I think you bring up a statistic, which one of your colleagues at the Brookings Institution, Alice Rivlin, former budget director, came up with a stat about just the driverless car and how that would impact trucking could see two and a half million jobs just go away. People should be nervous about the job impact because uh, Alice has pointed out that uh, driverless trucks are going to displace a lot of truck drivers. And that's a great entry-level job for people coming out of high school. They don't want to go to college, so it's really going to impact them. Uh, We're seeing the same thing in the retail uh, sector. I think there are more than 8 million retail uh, clerks uh, in America. There are a million taxi drivers and ride-sharing drivers. They're going to be impacted by autonomous vehicles. So if you just add those numbers together, that's almost 12 million jobs, and they're all entry-level jobs. So my concern is not necessarily the people who go to college, go to graduate school, get advanced degrees, know a lot about uh, data. They're going to do perfectly fine. But the entry-level people are going to have a real challenge. But even those people who go to college, right, Let's say you go to college and you uh, you decide I'm going to go be a paralegal. For all I know, the paralegal could be a job that could be automated through AI and through uh, robust searches and engines. I don't need a paralegal anymore. I have a computer that can basically do 80% of what a paralegal would do. So maybe instead of having a staff of 50 paralegals, I need 10. So even those middle office jobs are at risk, right? Actually, those jobs are being automated through AI because AI is really good at literature reviews, uh, searching past uh, legal uh, cases. There are AI solutions for uh, legal research. So we're used to thinking of automation affecting only blue-collar workers. But as you point out, it is starting to bleed into white-collar occupations as well. Not only that, like our sponsor is Betterment. Betterment is an online financial platform, which essentially with fantastic algorithms can create a money management system for investors. So now instead of going to the schleppy broker who's going to charge you two and a half percent or let's just say five percent up front for something and then a percent a year, that's gone. And just think about that, that, that for a quarter of a percent, 
all that money is just goes to an investor's bottom line, but it does displace a lot of people who went into the brokerage business. Actually, finance is going to be on the front lines of automation. I mean, we're already seeing it. I think uh, half of stock market trades already are automated uh, trades. Uh, AI solutions are coming into finance to detect fraud. They look for outliers in uh, financial transactions. Uh, there's going to be a lot of solutions there. People in brokerage uh, houses are discovering that uh, algorithms and computers actually are pretty good at market investment because they're not as emotional as humans are. Uh, so they definitely have an edge on uh, things like that where you want an emphasis on the facts and uh, objective realities. And you also say in the book that that healthcare is an industry that actually has not yet really been disrupted so much by technology. So how how do you see healthcare being impacted? Healthcare has always been slow to embrace technology innovation. It's actually one of the reasons costs are so high there because it's very labor intensive and it's very hard to automate. But even there, we are starting to see uh, things uh, come in. So, for example, uh, radiologists uh, represent a field that are going to be subject to automation because there are AI solutions that are now learning how to read CAT scans and X-rays. And basically, if you show them a lot of uh, CAT scans and say this is an abnormality and this is a normal uh, reading, if you show them enough. At the end of that process, that software will be almost 95% accurate in reading uh, the CAT scan, uh, which is very close to uh, the accuracy level of a uh, radiologist. You're kidding, because I was about to ask you, so what's the accuracy of a human radiologist? Right now, humans have maybe a 2 to 3 percentage point advantage over those algorithms, but that range is disappearing. What about in education? I was really fascinated by the idea about how... I, I don't know. So we, we met through Brown University, right? And you pay gobs and gobs of money to go to a school like that. Is that necessary or can we just do online learning? Can can you forego your four-year keg party? Do you have to walk past Sigma Chi or can you just take an online course and get as much out of it? Well, Brown, the high cost is completely warranted just by the quality of the faculty. <laughs> so. Thank you to of all course. my former friends who are yes, still on the faculty at Brown. Right. Thank you. But the answer to your question is, yeah, there are lots of substitutions for real human teaching these days. There are lots of online courses uh, that are very good. There are certificate uh, programs that businesses are uh, putting on. Uh, there are these massive online uh, courses that can enroll 100,000 people. Now, of course, the secret is 95% of them do not finish the class, but still, that's 5,000 people who actually are able to finish it. And so- Wait, the- why don't they finish the class? Uh, just because the the big challenge of online education is it's hard to approximate the same level of student engagement as you see in a uh, teacher-led uh, classroom. So uh-huh. uh, that has been the Achilles heel, and that's one of the things that has limited uh, automation in that field. But yeah, hmm. the online classes are getting better. Uh, young people, of course, are growing up as digital natives, so they love everything online. They love uh, their uh, mobile uh, phones. So uh, they are completely comfortable taking uh, education uh, through the internet. Now, in in the book, you sort of lay out what's going on with robots and AI and automation. And then you talk about how the workforce is going to have to be more flexible. Why does the workforce have to be more flexible? What if it just stays as is? Tell, Give me the worst case scenario right now. The workforce has to become more flexible just because there's going to be a lot more change, chaos, and uncertainty in the workforce. Now, 
automation is going to gradually phase in over a 10, 20, and 30-year time period. So it's not like tomorrow we're going to wake up and everything is automated. Uh, but what I tell young people today is like in my experience, I've had two employers in my adult life, Brown University and now the Brookings Institution. I tell young people they're not going to have that experience. They're going to have six, seven, eight, or nine different employers. They're going to shift across companies. They may shift across uh, sectors. They're going to have to constantly upgrade their uh, job skills. So it's not the that people can't cope with this uh, reality, but it's going to be a different situation. People of my uh, generation and older generation is used to a lot more stability and continuity than is going to be the case for young people. You also cite a lot of research that shows uh, that people are willing to do this, that they know they need to keep their skill level up. I remember even during the election, we had these, um, there were these big profiles of like, these are the people displaced by the economy who are just disgruntled on both sides, right? One guy, I remember, I just remember this so well, he's like, I don't want to get retrained as a nurse. I was a manuf- I worked in a Ford plant for 30 years. I don't want to do that. What's going to happen to somebody like that who's so far in that it's really hard to get him or her to move. How do we help that person get over the hump? I mean, this is going to be the real challenge. I mean, there certainly are going to be lots of new kinds of jobs that are created through automation, through robots, through artificial intelligence. But the people who are going to lose jobs are not going to have the skills to qualify for many of those jobs. So uh, either one, they're going to get left behind, which is going to be bad for society as a whole. Or secondly, they're just going to need uh, a lot of worker retraining to try and qualify them for uh, the uh, new kinds of uh, jobs. The other issue that's going to be problematic is just the geographic disparities. Uh, Some of my colleagues at the Brookings Metro Program uh, did a study and found that only 15% of the counties in America now generate 64% of the GDP. Wait, wait, say that again. I love that stat. 15% of the counties in America generate 64% of the GDP. Holy smokes. Basically what that means is almost all the economic activity is on the East Coast and the West Coast and a few metropolitan areas in between. And so the problem is many Americans, uh, in fact, you know, two-thirds or more of Americans may end up living in geographic areas where there's no economic activity. We already see that today in rural America, in West Virginia. The opioid crisis is really uh, taking off. There's no economic hope. And so we have to be careful that we don't end up in a situation where all those bad social trends become a lot worse. The future of work is changing. It's changing as we speak. What's our first decision? Do we want to change with it or do we want to just let China eat our lunch? Well, we have no uh, option but to change with it because the automation is going to happen. There's very little regulation in the technology area. Uh, American technology companies are you know, the best in the world. They're going to keep innovating. They're going to keep generating robots that are uh, better, smarter, and uh, cheaper. The same thing is true in terms of artificial intelligence. Like All this stuff is going to take off. So what we need to do is kind of start to make the changes now so that as those workforce ramifications start to unfold, fold over the next 10 and 20 years, people are able to uh, cope with it. And so I talk about the need for lifetime learning, uh, the idea that we invest in education only for people up to about age 25, which is pretty much the current model. Uh, that will be obsolete. People are going to have to invest throughout their lives. I propose the development of a lifetime learning account. I love that idea, by the way. I thought that was a genius idea. I mean, it's kind of like an IRA uh, in which people can invest, perhaps their company uh, can uh, match of the investment. And then people, as they need to upgrade their job skills, they can draw on that account to take a college class, an online class or c- certificate program, whatever it is they need. 
I love that idea so much because I also think that, you know, if, if it starts as a small contribution over time, it's there for you. And I like the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter the application because obviously there's like you have a 529 account. It has to be a, an accredited institution. Well, that may not be what I need. Maybe I need, maybe I work at CBS News and there's a brand new robotic camera and I have to learn that. And so I would like to take a little extra time to learn how to use that or there's a new editing software, whatever it is. So I love that idea. And I love the idea that companies are doing a lot of this job training themselves anyway, right? Absolutely. It's already happening. And the other thing we need to do is focus on making benefits much more portable because in a situation where people are likely to be moving from employer to employer on a much more frequent basis than has been true for uh, my generation, like there are companies, uh, Brookings actually is an example of this, where you have to be there two years uh, to get fully vested in the retirement system. Now, you know, if you plan to work there for 25 years, that's not such a big deal. But, you know, we have research assistants who come there, they work a couple years, then they move on to something else, it's like they never get vested in our retirement program. So that's an example where companies need to start changing their practices in a way that accommodate more job churn, more people moving from position to position. And you say that like that's not just with having a 401k, but it's also with health insurance. You note that, and I think that's really an interesting thing because you sort of cite that we have to have different types of safety nets for this new workforce. Talk a little bit a little bit about the health insurance problem that exists because obviously a lot of people are tethered to jobs simply for their insurance and that's still the case. We're going to have to renegotiate our social contract, and the benefit piece is the big uh, challenge uh, there because you're going to have people moving from job to job. They need to be able to take their health benefits with them. One of the challenges in America, unlike some other uh, countries, is our benefits, our retirement, uh, our health benefits are all tied to the job. Like when we created these benefits, we wanted to work through private employers. So for much of American history, that has been a real advantage and a real strength. But if you end up in a situation where people are moving from from job to job, and there's a certain percentage of the population that is being left behind, the question of how we provide health care for those individuals and retirement benefits is going to be a real challenge. If we had a Medicare for all, if we had a single payer system where everyone got some basic amount of health insurance, would that do the job? Well, that is one way to solve it. You could have the government playing a major role in setting up exchanges uh, the way that we saw in the Affordable Care Act. But there are other more moderate versions of that where private companies continue to play a role, but they set up exchanges that facilitate uh, health care uh, portability. Uh, you could have uh, trade associations or private uh, groups uh, set up exchanges. So there are lots of different ways to do it. But through one of those means, we have to do that. Right. Uh, because otherwise, uh, people are going to have a big problem with uh, health this is better off with jill schlesinger we'll get back to our interview with daryl west in just a minute but you know one area that daryl is very focused on is financial services he says that is actually where ai and automation can do a lot of good and of course we understand that because our sponsor betterment is using technology to help them be more efficient and by extension, make you more efficient. Betterment is the largest online financial advisor. And the cool thing is that their mission is essentially to help customers make the most of their money. They take complex investing strategies and they use really cool technology 
to make those strategies more efficient. Betterment also offers personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or get the retirement you want. Of course, all investing involves risk, whether you're using technology or a pen and paper. Better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed free at Betterment. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Daryl West. So one of the things that um, you talk about is that there are lots of different ways to pay for social programs. So, you know, I think that when people hear ideas like this, they sound fantastic. But then they're like, oh, so what are you going to do? How are you going to pay for it? One of the things that you actually cite is something called a solidarity tax to address economic dislocations. This is a tax, I'm quoting, this is a tax on the net property, stock, pension, and financial assets owned by high net worth individuals. And a number of countries already do that. And you say, although it is likely he no longer would support this idea, billionaire Donald Trump proposed in 1999 a one-time wealth tax of 14 and a quarter percent on people with a net worth of $10 million or more to help pay off the national debt. At the time, he said this would raise $5.7 trillion and it would put the company, the country back on track. What is the possibility that a solidarity tax could go into effect in this country? It's going to be very difficult, certainly in the short run, but in the longer run, it may be uh, possible. I was very amused when I was doing the research for the book when I found that uh, tidbit about Donald Trump in 1999. As you point out, he did uh, support uh, this kind of uh, solidarity tax. And interestingly, uh, during uh, the presidential campaign on one of the uh, network shows, uh, one of the anchors asked him, you know, I'd found out this fact as well, and asked him, did he still support it? And even then, in uh, I think it was 2016, uh, Trump said, yes, I still support it. Uh, and a lot of my rich friends do as well. Now, that second part, I seriously doubt if that is the case, because I don't think wealthy people would uh, be very enthusiastic about a wealth tax. But in the book, I do try and take uh, the idea of how you pay for these ideas very seriously, because I do think we're going to have to invest more in education. Healthcare is going to be a challenge. Just how you provide benefits for people undergoing all these economic dislocations is going to be a big challenge. Uh, Bill Gates, a few years ago, proposed a robot tax, basically saying, hey, if robots are taking the jobs uh, and doing economic activities that humans used to do, we should just tax the robot. And then that's a way to provide. Yeah. And all of Silicon Valley freaked out on him, right? (laughs) Yes. Basically, everybody hated that idea uh, because you actually don't want to tax the most innovative and productive part of the economy. Like that's uh, anti-innovation. So we haven't heard a lot from him uh, since then. Uh, You could use the income tax as a way to uh, pay for it. Uh, And so, for example, a popular democratic option is to basically raise uh, the the taxes on wealthy people by about 10%. That'll generate 30 or $40 uh, billion a year. How much do we need to raise to to do all the things you want to do? A lot more than 30 or $40 billion. Sounds like it. It's an expensive proposition. So in other words, there's not enough rich people to tax to do this. Basically, the income tax will not do it. So you could do a consumption tax, uh, a sales uh, tax. Uh, In Europe, they have the uh, VAT, which is basically a sales uh, tax. Or you could do the idea that I uh, talk about in the book as a solidarity tax. So Somehow, we're going to have to come up with more money. There are a variety of ways to think about doing it. That's fascinating. Let me get on to some other things. This stat of yours, 65% of children in grade school today are predicted to work in jobs that have yet to be invented. So two-thirds of kids. So how are we educating our kids right now? What do we need to do differently? 
I mean, the problem is we're educating people for the old economy, not the new economy. And, you know, that just simply is not going to work. We can all see that the pace of innovation is uh, picking up. There are going to be a lot of new jobs that are going to be created, but we need to make sure that young people are coming out of high school as well as college with the skills that they're going to need. So they're going to need uh, data skills. But it's not just kind of the nerds who are going to do well in the new environment, uh, like the humanities students can do well, because we need people with good design skills. We need people who can take the technology and put it in a form that's usable for all the rest of us who are not uh, scientific uh, geniuses. So there definitely will be a place uh, for those uh, types of uh, people. The the skill that we really need to be educating people for is agility. Uh, There's a famous quote from Charles Darwin, uh, the thinker on evolution. In which he said that in the world of evolution, it's not the strongest or even the most intelligent that is going to survive. It's the most adaptable. And I think that logic applies very much because we're undergoing this transition to a digital economy. We need to teach students skills of agility and adaptability because they're going to need it. If you're thinking about the workforce, you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s. What are some courses that we should be taking, using, or at least exploring right now to help upgrade ourselves for what's coming. People need to be kind of thinking about what are the skills that uh, they need in their particular job or a job that they would want that would help advance them. Uh, so it could be a data skill, could be a computer a skill, it could be a communication skill. Like we're really going to need much better written and oral communications in the future. So people who are uh, glib and uh, can uh, talk well, we're definitely going to need uh, people like that. Uh, again, the humanities angle is going to be uh, very important. Uh, you know, the genius of Stephen Jobs was not that he invented the best products at Apple, but he had the best designed products. So people who can understand design, those are going to be very important skills as well. You know, we uh, interviewed a, a mathematician on the show last year. Her name is Kathy O'Neill, and she wrote this book called Weapons of Math Destruction. It was sort of like a takedown of how algorithms are misused. But I do think a, a, a rudimentary understanding of how algorithms work is also a helpful piece of this. Even if you want to critique the algorithm, you have to understand how they operate. Exactly. And they're actually not that complicated when you start uh, getting into it. The crucial thing in, in terms of technology innovation and our ability to navigate this is we actually control our own uh, fate. I think we will end up by 2050 in a situation that is either really good if we adopt the solutions that I outline in my book or in a situation that is really bad if we don't. I think it's a binary choice. This is not an Mm -hmm. era where political incrementalism is going to dictate what happens. Like small-scale solutions are not going to solve the problem. So we have to think big. We have to think long-term on a 10, 20, and 30-year time scale. But I think if we make the right choices, we could end up in a situation in 2050 that is really good for many people in America. As you know, you are a political scientist. When you look at the landscape today, are there politicians that give you hope? Uh, The politicians who give me hope are very few of the current leaders who are all members of the older generation. I think we really need to look to next generation leaders, both on the Republican side as well as on the Democratic side, people who don't like the current polarization, the gridlock, and the hyper-partisanship, and are starting to think uh, creatively. Uh, I've had lunch with U.S. uh, senators, and they're trying to think for what is going to be the situation 
10 years from now? And how can I position myself for the world that is going to exist? So there are people out there who are forward-leaning on these types of issues. Daryl West, we started our interview and I said, what was the best financial decision or career decision you made? And of course, you know, a shill for the retirement plan industry. You said starting my retirement. Now I love that one. Starting to contribute early. What's the worst financial decision that you've made? Actually, I have been very fortunate in my life. I can honestly say there haven't been any bad financial decisions in the sense that when you look at the big things that dictate someone's finances, so the retirement investment, clearly that worked out very well. Uh, My real estate uh, decisions, uh, I bought my first house in Providence in 1983 for $76,000. Where was that, please? On the east side, Uh close to the university. Nice. And it was literally like the last one or two years in Providence where you could buy a house that cheaply almost immediately thereafter prices escalated I would not have been able to buy a house like two or three years later so I was very lucky in my real estate investing any regrets on in, overly investing in your education no not at all no we love a good investment actually my favorite story on that is my mother worked at the University Miami University of Ohio where I grew up because I grew up outside of Cincinnati and so my annual tuition at Miami University because of the employee discount was hundred fifty dollars a year the best bargain of my lifetime that may be the best financial decision i was gonna say best financial decision ever (laughs) actually definitely uh daryl west the name of the book is the future of work we will put links to it in our show notes you have been so generous with your time thank you so much for joining us thank you very much don't forget we drop new episodes of better off every tuesday and thursday you can subscribe anywhere you get those podcasts apple google play radio.com stitcher and don't forget to leave us a review we got such a nice one totally made my weekend a couple weeks ago so leave a review pump up my ego i need it sometimes if you want to get on the air with us you can always send an email ask jill at betteroffpodcast.com our music is composed by joel goodman Mark Telercio is our excellent executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13 and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.